Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Texas, Arizona, the fall classic is here. Now, if you at the start of the season had gone to Bet Online Sportsbook, used our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, and gotten your 50% welcome bonus using the link in the description to this episode, you could have gotten the Texas Rangers at plus 5,000 to win the World Series and the Arizona Diamondbacks at plus 6,600 as world champions. Diamondbacks had the 25th best odds. Texas had the 20th best odds. If you want to take a stab at the World Series now, bet online sportsbook, use our promo code BLEAVE to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, where the game starts. talk about the Jets, the Jets were certainly a surprise team going in their bye with three and three. But I think the Houston Texans absolutely are one of the biggest surprises, shocks of the NFL. We talked about them in the preseason and we were not very optimistic, not at all. Like we talked about Bryce Young being in a better situation, going to the Carolina Panthers. That team hasn't won a game. CJ Stroud. Yes, he threw his first interception. Yes, he finally broke his record breaking interceptionless streak to start a career. I believe it was 194 pass attempts before that streak finally came to an end, but they won the game, which is the most important thing for the Houston Texans. It doesn't matter an interceptionless streak. I mean, that's arbitrary. They went and beat the New Orleans Saints, who at least to start the year were the NFC South favorite. They have another good win on their record against the AFC North leading Pittsburgh Steelers. And lest we forget, They beat the Jacksonville Jaguars, who were supposed to be the cream of the crop coming out of the AFC South. They beat them bad. So this Houston Texans team, um, I'm obviously impressed with them. Uh, Kyle Ledbetter, I know you haven't been very high on the Texans over the last few years. What do you think of them now? Oh, you mean the worst-run organization in football that hired their team pastor to run their team and helped fuel three different organizations' most successful runs of the last 15 years? Yeah, that Texans team. Here's my thoughts on the Texans. C.J. Stroud looks pretty good, huh? That's pretty much my thought. C.J. Stroud looks pretty good. And they've kind of fixed that offense, right? Like, they're not world beaters on the offensive side of the ball, but... They are right now 11th in the NFL in DVOA ranking. They have, I believe, going into last week, I I don't know what the numbers are after last week, but the Texans have fixed the offensive side of the ball. They have very skilled players across different position groups. Uh, they often, they've invested a lot in the offensive line. I mean, I know Kenyon Green's been out for season and Josh Jones was out to start the season. Tunsil came back from injury, but they have invested a lot on the offensive line. Uh, even though Damian Pierce has, has been a decent running back, not great, not bad, pretty decent. Receivers that previously we thought were mute in the NFL and not really had much of a place, have uh, have flourished with the Texans. Dalton Schultz looks just as good in Houston as he did in Dallas in that Mark Andrews tight end role. Nico 
Collins has been a legitimate wide receiver one this year. Saw Bobby Trees, Robert Woods had a touchdown last week, so he's at least still hanging around there. Uh, My big takeaway from Houston is the Texans have fixed their offense and they are showing signs of life going forward. And that is a positive that any kind of positive the Texans haven't had in like four years. I got to give a lot of credit to the Kyle Shanahan coaching tree, because if you look around the NFL at this point, uh, Mike McDaniel, what he's done in Miami, revitalizing that offense has been nothing short of amazing, right? Um, Then we go to New York, where we mentioned again, the surprise of the three and three Jets, despite Aaron Rodgers being out. Robert Sala did start the year on the hot seat, but I think given what that defense has been, he's safe right now. He has job security. Uh, When it comes to the Houston Texans, though, D'Amico, First-year head coach, uh, he brings Bobby Slowick over with him, the former 49ers passing game coordinator. And as you mentioned, you're seeing the changes in the offense. They do have a competent offense running through C.J. Stroud, who's a rookie, who's really taken to this West Coast offense and made it his own. You could tell D'Amico out there, he's a leader of men. Men listen to him, and I think that that's obviously important as a head coach to have the support of your players. Obviously, I think it helps to Miko that he's a very recent NFL player himself. He's a very young coach who had a successful NFL career, was a top-end linebacker. He's loved in Houston, given his ties to the organization. And for what it's worth, I think him and Nick Casario, I was a little hesitant to believe that that pairing would have worked out. But I do think that him and Nick Casario are of like mind and how to build this team. The fact that they made such a bold decision to go out there and draft Will Anderson to trade up to go get Will Anderson there and this draft right behind CJ Stroud. I think that that's telling me that your GM and your head coach think alike. And if your head coach says, I want that guy, which I think D'Amico was probably one of the biggest Will Anderson advocates in the room saying, I want that guy. He's going to go get him. And that's promising when you consider making free agent decisions. I'm sure this year, after seeing a successful season from rookie CJ Stroud, if you told me the Texans were big time buyers uh, going into this offseason, I would not be surprised. Take advantage of that rookie contract, right? Get in some more guys that you think can help build around Stroud. Nico Collins coming into his own, great. What they did with Tank Dell, I think has been a solid late round draft pick for them. And I could see him really developing as one of Stroud's favorite targets. Obviously, you want to add more. And I I don't think that they're done building. But three and three here, I mean, Hal, you, you mentioned the Colts could win the AFC South. You thought the Colts realistically could win the AFC South. Why not the Texans this year? I mean, they're three and three. And again, they have the most important win on their schedule against the Jacksonville Jaguars. And they kicked the Jacksonville Jaguars ass. So if the Jags slip up, why not the Texans out of the AFC South? Well, that brings us to the defense, because uh, for all the chatter about D'Amico Ryan's being this defensive savant and the 40 and the 49er defense coming over and everything like that, uh, they they have not shown market improvement on defense. And part of that is Derek Stingley's been out for the entire season, like not having a former top three pick has made a difference for the Houston Texans. They don't just don't have enough dudes on the defensive side of the ball. It's not scheme. It's not whatever else. They just, they don't have enough talented players on the defensive side of the ball to compete with the best of the best NFL. Hold up though. What what I would counter with Texans will show some level of improvement. Yeah. Hold up. What I would counter with here is though they held the saints to 13 points. They 
held the Falcons largely in that game. It took a comeback drive for them to get to 21 points there. Steelers only scored six points on them. Jags only scored 17. The Colts were the biggest outlier so far. And then, of course, the Ravens in week one, week one, when you're starting rookie, of course, it's going to look a little bit ugly to start the season. Over the last four weeks, I mean, I'm looking at the top scoring team being 21 points. I don't think that defense is bad by any means. The defense has not been very good. And part of that is the games where they score. I, if I remember correctly, the game against the Falcons where they held them to 20 points, I believe they only scored, I want to say like 18 or something like that. Yes, they um, lost that game 21 to 19. But again, like it has not been very good. You're saying that when their highest scoring output or output against them has been 21 points over the last four weeks. That was one of those games where time of possession mattered. Like I was watching that game on the red zone and like what was happening is that as they got later in the game, I think the Falcons only had like four total possessions in the second half yeah. of that game. And so it, it became a game of like, we want to make sure that we are holding the ball as long as we possibly can kind of stuff. And okay. The defense hasn't allowed a ton of points there, but it hasn't been very good. Well, yes, but I mean, points matter, obviously. Like, I, I don't know what the DVOA numbers say. I don't know how many yards they're allowing by comparison. But I mean, at the end of the day, they're keeping guys out of the end zone, which I, I do think that that's primarily how the Texans have to win games. If they're keeping guys out of the end zone and their quarterback is giving them just enough to win games, then that's position they can win a lot more games in. And if you want to dissect saying, okay, they played Derek Carr, who has an injured shoulder, or they played Desmond Ritter, or they played Kenny Pickett. They did beat, again, the hell out of Trevor Lawrence for what that's worth. Uh, over the next couple weeks, I mean, hell, they get Bryce Young coming off bye week. Bryce Young hasn't looked great this season. They uh, they face the Buccaneers. Baker Mayfield, we know that he comes and goes with the wins. He could have a down performance. Joe Burrow and the Bengals, the Joe Burrow Bengals aren't the same Bengals that we thought they were coming into the year. And then they played the uh, Josh Dobbs led Cardinals. So over the next four weeks, they have some very winnable games coming up. So again, like I, I asked the question, why not the Texans out of this AFC South? Heck, if they beat the Jags again, coming off that four game stretch. So again, their next five games, they also have one more Jags game. They're looking pretty damn good, man. And I, at this defense, again, I'm looking at the point totals here. And I'm having a hard time calling them a bad defense by any means. Yeah, I, I think they are clearly better than the Titans. You can make an argument they're better than the Colts. I think them and the Colts are probably on the same tier right now of teams right now. It's just the, the Jaguars. Like the, the Texans right now are 17th in DVOA uh, in SRS ranking. They're, uh, I believe they were they were eighth going into last week. I don't know what they are right now, but the, the Texans are an average NFL football team right now and that has been because their offense is above average their defense is below average and you know if we're, if we're having the conversation about like having the money to go forward and make improvements to the team I think they want to concentrate that on the defensive side of the ball like bringing in real legitimate talented defensive players in addition to the draft picks they've spent already I think would be a wise investment for the Houston Texans going forward because on the offensive side of the ball, maybe they lack a true wide receiver number one. Like maybe you don't, maybe Nico Collins, who has put up wide receiver one numbers this year, maybe Nico, you look at Nico Collins and say, you know, we like that he's a number one, but we'd really like it more if we had a receiver better than Nico Collins. Maybe that's how they look at it. But assuming the offense continues to play at the level that it's at right now, which again is not a guarantee. Injuries happen. Rookie walls start to come in for some quarterbacks. Obviously, they're not the most talented offense in the world. I think we both agree they've 
outperformed expectations on the offensive side of the ball this year. So assuming the offense stays as good as it is, I don't see a reason why the Texans can't be six and four going into that next uh, stretch of games. That'll be a little more difficult. Uh, Houston can definitely go three and one in that game, four game stretch that you mentioned before. A lot of it, and this is my favorite kind of team. A lot of it's going to be like, we're going to score 30. Our opponent's going to score 30 and it's going to be a coin toss game at the end. And uh, those are my favorite kind of uh, seven and 10 or eight and nine or nine and eight teams to watch the teams that aren't going to the playoffs, but their style of football to watch is very entertaining. Okay. So again, let's talk about D'Amico Ryan's a little bit. I, I think that this is a conversation we have every year. So usually coach of the year goes to, we didn't expect your team to be good, but you're actually good. So we're giving you this award. Um, would you say D'Amico is currently the front runner in that? I feel like him and Robert Sala might have good cases. Hell, I want to give Kyle Shanahan it, but again, he's just doomed by his own team's success in terms of like his ability to win that award this year. Uh, what do you think of D'Amico for coach of the year? Everyone's running for second place because Man Campbell's going to win coach of the year this year, but in the running for second place, I think D'Amico's in that group of like two to six who are like, yeah, we didn't expect your team to be good and has improved. They're probably going to have to win the the AFC South for him to have a chance of finishing second place behind Man Campbell. But I, I do think what D'Amico Rines is doing is a market improvement. And everyone says, you know, if you're going to hire a defensive coach, make sure it's a special defensive coach. And I think, I think the Texans are the big winners in that sense. It helps that D'Amico had the local connection to the team. He used to play for them, obviously it, you know, that job over any job he wanted in the league, he could have had any of the five coaching jobs that were available this off season. And he chose the Texans job. And I think the Texans are lucky to have him there. Uh, he's not going to win coach of the year, but that doesn't mean that he has, outperformed expectations for the Houston Texans and him and that coaching staff have fixed the offense and they looks like they have a quarterback for the next 10 years. And I think he would trade that in for any coach of the year recognition. All right, guys. Well, what do you think of the Houston Texans to this point? Three and three going into the bye week have a very winnable stretch of games coming off that bye week. What do you think their final record will be? Leave a like on the video, subscribe to the channel, follow us on our social medias from Juju and Kyle. Stay safe, happy, and healthy. We'll see you next time. It's certainly a much different energy in Sacramento. Last season was a revelation for a fan base that had been largely dormant. But now, Kings fans can scream to the heavens, Light the beam as the team finished 48 and 34 last season, third in the Western Conference. Coming into this season, they're over under 43 and a half. They start off the season with a victory. Kyle Ledbetter, how are you feeling about this Kings team going into the year? Last year they were surprised, but now there's expectations. Will they live up to them? Well, depends on where you set the expectations. And Honestly, the expectations are all over the place right now. Uh, I'm here in Sacramento. You can see my light the beam shirt, my light the beam hat. Uh, I am the radio producer for the Kings. So I've got a lot of Kings information. I'm on the radio talking Kings and producing Kings broadcast. So let me just say uh, the expectations for the Kings are all over the place. On one hand, you have Michael Wilbon going on TV and saying he thinks the Sacramento Kings can be the number one seed 
in the Western Conference. He's, he said that the Kings can be number one in the West. You had Jay Williams go on ESPN today and say, after the Nuggets, the Kings are the next best team in the West. And on the flip side, you have John Hollinger saying they're going to miss the playoffs this year as the 11th team out of 15 in the West. So live up to expectations is a bit of a loaded question for the Kings because the expectations are all over the place for this team in a Western Conference where... If you have one bad month, you might find yourself in the play-in tournament because there are 11 teams fighting for 10 spots in the Western Conference and the teams that are not going to make the playoffs at least have skilled players like San Antonio, Houston, even Utah. Those are teams that aren't going to be an easy out. But the thing that Sacramento should be excited about is they went into Utah first game of the season, a team that I think is chasing ping pong balls this year. Other people think that they will be a feisty, you know, team fighting for the play in, but they went into Utah and they beat the brakes off the jazz and that's, and they did it picking up right where they left off last year with the most efficient offense in the history of the NBA. Again, the most efficient offense in NBA history. And the Kings are picking up from there and building this season from that. What do you think is the biggest thing they took away from that loss in round one to the Golden State Warriors? What do you think the Sacramento Kings learned from their first season back in the playoffs? We know ending the drought, playing against a team that is considered the dynasty or the most recent dynasty in the NBA. Is there anything in game one or this opening week that you saw that is a notable difference from last year's team to this year's team? So three points. One, they were a better team than Golden State last year in that series. Without question, on paper, they were a better team than Golden State. They should have won that series in five or six games. If one Harrison Barnes shot goes in at the end of game four, that's like a quarter of an inch different. They're up 3-1 going back to Sacramento in that series. They were a better team than Golden State last year, and they let that get away. Uh, Number two, they really have problems on defense. But they also proved in that series they can play very good defense. They held the Warriors to under 100 points in a game six that Golden State could have closed them out at Golden State's home arena. Like that was one of the best defensive performances the Kings played all season. And it came when their season was on the line. And then they followed that up by giving up 50 points in a game seven at home to Steph Curry. So like their defense is a problem. Mike Brown literally had a quote the day before the season started that said, I can promise you we will not finish 25th or 26th in team defense like we were last year. Uh, And the third thing is that this team goes as far as De'Aaron Fox can take them. He's their best player. He's somewhere between like the 17th and like 20th best player in the league right now. And if they go as far as De'Aaron Fox can take them, I think that that is not the worst bet in the world because De'Aaron Fox with a broken finger in the playoffs last year gave them a 38 point performance in a game they had to have. So I personally think that they should feel good about having De'Aaron Fox as their number one, because even though he's not a superstar, or even one of the best players of his current generation. Uh, De'Aaron Fox is a legitimate all-star who you want the ball in his hands late in games, and and he can deliver in big moments for the Sacramento Kings. So I think those are the big things they learned from the Warriors series last year. So if De'Aaron Fox came into his own last year and really took control of this team, and you, you put him between 17 and 20, is there still any room for growth? Do you think that he's already a finished product? 
No, I don't think so. I, I think that, well, De'Aaron Fox right now is, I believe, 26 years old. So he's like right in the earliest stages of his prime. You might argue last year was the beginning of the prime for De'Aaron Fox. Uh, I, I think De'Aaron Fox still very much has room to grow. He only averaged 25 points per game last year. And, uh, you know, the a byproduct of the team around him, I think that was part of why his numbers were so low. They had just incredible shooting all throughout the season. Obviously, the most efficient offense in the league. Sabonis, who's basically like diet Jokic when it comes to that offense, like distributing the ball in the middle with four shooters around, often him having the ball in his hands as the primary ball handler. No coincidence that the first full season with Demonis Sabonis, they played like nine games together after the trade in 2022. But in their first full season together, De'Aaron Fox went from career high 47% shooting percentage to 51% shooting percentage last year. Like, it's not a surprise that in this offense with Demonis Sabonis as the focal point, De'Aaron Fox became even more efficient than he was before. Uh, yeah. There's obviously room to grow for De'Aaron, but I think that the Kings run better when De'Aaron Fox is not asked to be the focal point of the offense to shoot the ball 17 to 20 times a game and He's not the greatest three-point shooter in the world. Like he's he's around that 31-32% range. So, I mean, it's better when they run the offense the way they do and when push comes to shove at the end of the game, get the ball in De'Aaron Fox's hand and let him work with it. Speaking of pushing and shoving, it seemed like DeMontis Bonas was in foul trouble a lot in the Golden State series, and that was an issue that ultimately burned them in a couple games. DeMontes, we've talked about De'Aaron Fox and his ability to continue to grow for the Sacramento Kings. DeMontes, you know, still a young guy in his own right, too. Uh, do you think that he can be the number two on this team if they want to take that next leap? Like, do you think that he has that potential in him to even grow in his own right? Because we know right now the Western Conference is dominated by, you know, a very good big in its own right. Uh, his name, you know, of course, is Jokic. <laughs> well, it's funny that you bring up Jokic because the Kings right now are basically modeling everything they do after the Nuggets. Like their model for success is what the Nuggets do. And it's it stinks to call Sabonis a two because him and Fox might be both equally valuable. Both of them made all NBA third team last year, and they both do things that are so different and yet so important to what the Sacramento Kings do. I know Jokic and Murray is kind of the comp before, and personally, De'Aaron Fox, I think, is a better player than Jamal Murray. I think there's some debate on that because like Jamal Murray had like the third highest scoring postseason in NBA history last year. So, you know, Jamal Murray's coming to, into his own a little bit, but Sabonis can do what Jokic does. And and the key difference between Sabonis and Jokic is that Sabonis often only takes shots when they are like guarantees. Jokic is a better shooter, but Jokic is also willing to take shots more frequently than Sabonis. Sabonis is inclined to pass, distribute. He's the leading rebounder in the league, et cetera, et cetera. So there are some key differences there, but they're the closest thing to a 1A, 1B that exists in the NBA. And, and yes, they go as far as De'Aaron Fox takes them because De'Aaron Fox is the leading scorer and the the star player on the team. But I think there's there's room to grow for Sabonis and, you know, they need probably more out of him if they're ever going to take the leap to potentially contend against the Nuggets, because I think if they played the Nuggets in the playoffs last year, they would have been swept out the building. But they're trying to model themselves after what the Denver Nuggets are doing. And in order to contend with the Nuggets, I, I think they're going to need Sabonis to uh, bring more on the offensive side of the ball and additionally 
foul trouble is a problem because the best ability is availability. And I believe in the regular season, Demontis Sabonis was number one in fouls in the NBA last year. Let's try and craft a perfect pathway for this Kings team in the Western Conference, like some teams that they should avoid, some teams that they match up well against. If they are to, like you said, Michael Wilbon win the Western Conference by surprise this year, shock the world. Who do they need to avoid most and who do you think that they can take advantage of on the path to get there? Well, so it's interesting because the reason I don't think the Sacramento Kings will be a top team in the Western Conference like last year is that they have the exact same starting five as last season. The exact same starting five as things stand right now. They're getting ready to eventually spring Chris Duarte in at the two and move Kevin Herter to the bench at a certain point. But they're essentially bringing back the exact same team as last year. And you could say Keegan Murray's going to develop and De'Aaron Fox is going to come into his own as a superstar or whatever you might say. But like they're bringing back exactly the same team. And what you have in the, the West is what did this Clippers add? They added back Paul George. What did the Pelicans add? They add back Zion Williamson. What did the Thunder add? They add Chet Holmgren. Uh, what does Minnesota add? They add back Carl Anthony Towns because Towns missed 55 games last year, which was basically the whole season. So like the other teams in the West that they passed last year are getting key pieces of their team back in additions while Sacramento is staying about the same. So I think that in order for them to to stay at that two or three position in the Western Conference, they are going to need one similarly good injury luck as last year. Uh, the only real injury they had was Demata Sabonis had a, an avulsion fracture in his thumb that he was able to play through for the entire season. The second part of it is teams that have length often give the Sacramento Kings trouble, especially because they're not a very good defensive team and they're defensive strengths are on the perimeter with Don, uh, Davion Mitchell, whose nickname is off night and Chris Duarte on the perimeter. And Harrison Barnes is often the, the player guarding the best forward for their team, which is not an ideal situation. So teams with length give them fits. It's why I, I don't think they'll be able to contend with the Nuggets this year. The Timberwolves gave them fits last year. Uh, the Pelicans will probably give them fits this year. Uh, those are the matchups that they probably want to avoid as the playoffs go along or as the regular season goes along. All right, guys. Well, hey, if you are a Kings fan, like, are you ready to light the beam a lot more this season? Let us know below your win totals in the comments section. Leave a like on the video. Subscribe to the channel. Follow us on all our social medias from Juju and Kyle. Stay safe, happy, and healthy. We'll see you next time. It is the season of overreaction as we tip off this NBA season. The Boston Celtics get a big win in their opening game. Uh, big story there. Tingus Pingus putting up over 30 points, playing against the team that drafted him, the New York Knicks. So, you know, it was a big revenge game style day for KP. Uh, what do you think of seeing KP go out there and shine? Well, there's very little debate in the NBA that he's the best number four in the league, right? If Kristaps Porzingis is your number four, that means your team is pretty damn good. And granted, there's only one ball. There is but so many touches for the Celtics. But Kristaps Porzingis being able to do that every night is something that they weren't getting from their number four last year, which 
I guess their number four was Al Horford, but like the Boston Celtics are really deep and really good. And I didn't think that the Porzingis move would have as much of a profound impact as others did. Obviously, with the tiniest of sample sizes in one game, that would not be the case. Moving Marcus Smart for Kristaps Porzingis in a vacuum is a good trade. And then when you think about it for that team specifically, it seems like less of a win. But at the same time, I mean, the Boston Celtics look impeccable on offense. They were the number one offense last year, and it seems like they're only poised to get better this year. Yeah, and some other things that kind of like happened in this game. You talked about KP being called the number four. I've heard, as you mentioned, other people call him the number four. Coward called him the number four today. But some people in Boston media are even being so bold as to say he's the number two on this team. And again, when I talk about the overreaction element of this, this is with JB having a bad game. Jalen Brown struggled in the opener. He had... It was 11 points on 11 shots. So not Jalen Brown's best day at the office. Uh, he's obviously got paid to the largest contract in NBA history or highest paid player in the NBA, uh, whatever you want to like market as he got broken off. And, you know, to have this type of performance in the debut, obviously disappointing for him. Kristaps filled that vacuum. But man, what I got to say, though, watching him. I wasn't as down on him as other Celtics fans were when this trade was made. There's a lot of people hesitant to really buy in, and it hurts when you lose Marcus Smart. The Celtics were to win a championship. If they were to hang Banner 18, I wanted them to do it with Marcus Smart because he's a guy that's been there from the start. He was one of those ride-or-die type guys that you love to have on your team, those energy guys. It'd be like, you know, he's like, was our Draymond Green. You know, obviously less success in that time, but he was our Draymond. And, you know, we never got a chance to do it. And now insert KP. And at many times when I think about KP's career, right? So he comes into the league. No one loves him. I, I joke around with the Tingus Pingus nickname that was given to him by Knicks fans very early on. But then he shines in New York. You know, he puts up decent numbers. Not, you know, not superstar numbers, but decent numbers. And he becomes that unicorn. Everyone's praising him. Everyone's loving him. And then he just has that falling out with the Knicks. Ends up in Dallas. And he wasn't terrible for Dallas either, but he wasn't maybe a good fit with him and Luca. Then you look at what happens when he gets to Washington. And he had a productive year for Washington last year. It wasn't a bad year. So when he goes to the Celtics, if he was going in as the number four, whatever he ends up becoming this season, you know, the pressure wasn't really on him. But, you know, pressure moment in the opening game against, the, again, the team that drafted you, he was nailing those threes. He was money from the three-point line in that game. A uh, five and eight and nothing but net on each and every single one of them. That's like another element. When you talk about like floor spacing and what you can do creatively in an offense, seeing what Kristaps Porzingis was able to do on opening night is it, it's so much fun to think about like what this offense could become with him inserted into, into the lineup. And another layer of why this is so much fun is that this is something brand new for a player who's in just like seven years of his career, been through pretty much like all of the phases of the NBA where he's gone from being the number one and the go-to scoring option on a team in New York and, and obviously developed from there as a rookie. He was an all-star in his third year. in the I think he was a 21-year-old all-star in the league at one point, then goes to Dallas and he's supposed to be the number two that helps bridge Luka Doncic's development. They give up Tim Hardaway Jr. and two first round picks to get him. And then he goes to Washington and he's kind of back in that traditional number one role, but it's a different kind of number one than what he was with the Knicks. Instead of the go-to score and the facilitator, he's now kind of an off-ball number one who's giving them the production that they're looking for. And now he's not just a number 
three, he's probably a number four. Maybe offensively, you could argue he, he'll bring more yeah. to the table than Drew Holiday as the season goes along. Uh, I would definitely not go as far as to say he will supplant Jalen Brown in terms of the go-to focal point of that offense. But at times, he will be that guy. And especially if injuries come in, Boston is going to be able to withstand that a good bit more. Because I saw like Peyton Pritchard was getting significant minutes in this game. The one guy who like <laughs> demanded a trade years ago is now like getting minutes it, in the rotation. No, 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 no. It wasn't a trade years ago. It was a trade this past offseason. And instead, he got extended. So <laughs> The NBA finally showing a little bit of backbone. And when a player gets a trade request, it doesn't always mean you trade them right away. I mean, we're seeing it unfold with the James Harden situation a little bit, Uh, you know, like. Yeah, so, but hey, there's a difference between like Damian Lillard. There's a difference between Damian Lillard and Peyton Pritchard. Like Peyton Pritchard was one of those where I was like, the Celtics really don't have to do anything with that one. Unless he's <laughs> such a malcontent that he's going to find himself out of the league. I don't I don't think the Celtics have to worry about that. But look it worked out he's now a rotational piece yeah. for the Boston Celtics in a world where they just flipped Malcolm Brogdon and Robert Williams in exchange for Drew Holiday two players who by the way aren't starting on the Portland Trailblazers that's going to finish dead last in the West neither player is starting now Peyton Pritchard the key the next time you do have a trade request you gotta go into the James Harden school of quitting you gotta get in that James Harden bag of moves to quit your team pull out a fat suit go to a strip club do whatever you need to do if you need to really get out of town. But hey, it seems like the answer for him, at least right now, is just more minutes on the Celtics team. And I saw plenty of Peyton Pritchard out there. He was a presence on the court in terms of like how they used him. So now that you like look at this team and the Celtics, many say, have the best starting lineup in the league right now. When you consider Jason, Jalen, Kristaps, Drew, Derek White in the starting lineup, uh, they're so versatile, but they don't have like a lot of depth. That's the big problem there. So guys like Peyton Pritchard, you know, they are going to have to step up. We're going to see like guys like Luke Cornett a lot, play a lot more minutes this season as well. It just, you know, everyone needs to stay healthy. And I, again, you mentioned a common criticism with Chris Stops. Can he stay healthy? Well, you know, if we're having that argument, I mean, we just traded away Robert Williams, essentially, to get Chris Stops into this lineup. Robert Williams, the common question for him, could he stay healthy, right? If Kristaps can play this type of defense because he had four blocks in opening night. If he can play this level of defense, then he's essentially replacing Robert Williams, what he was defensively. And we know he's a much better offensive player than Robert Williams probably will ever develop into. In that sense, it's a huge win. And then, uh, you know, you mentioned Drew Holiday versus Marcus Smart. You, you saw him lining up against Julius Randle. You saw him lining up against Jalen Brunson. I think Jalen Brunson is like one of six in the fourth quarter with Drew Holiday guarding him. So that tells you what kind of what he brings to this. So they might still be the best defensive team. And Kristaps, even in his uh, postgame presser, talked about how he loves how the Celtics utilize him defensively. He feels like it's been the best defensive fit of his career, which, you know, we talked about this before, how impressive it is that the Celtics continue to be successful regardless of who's coaching, what year, similar group of players, but they're still rotating players in and out. I think they just have a good scheme ultimately, that helps them be a quality defensive team on a year-in, year-out basis. And I think Kristaps has gained that little bit of a boost. Yeah, and you mentioned their best starting five in the league. I mean, Juju, they had probably the best starting five in the league last year. And if they weren't number one, they were number two behind Milwaukee. I mean, this team 
was absolutely phenomenal last year. Number one in the league in expected win-loss record. Number one in SRS ranking. The only team in the NBA to be top five offensive efficiency rating and top five in defensive efficiency rating. I mean, this team clearly got better year over year. I know that they were losing that game to the Knicks a little bit, but I mean, we all agree that, I mean, you just talked about it, trading a bona fide all-star in Drew Holiday for Malcolm Brogdon and Robert Williams and draft picks. That is the type of move that you make in order to solidify your two-star players, to give them a support system that can potentially uh, sustain the success that they've had over the past two years. Because I did say last offseason and reiterated right before the season, I think the Celtics' best chance to win a championship has passed them by because of how good they were on the defensive side of the ball in 22 and how they were the only they were the best regular season team in the league hands down in 23 and the Bucks lost to the Heat and all that stuff but at the same time they've clearly helped support their two star players and the thing that does help with the uh the defensive part of it is despite the fact that you move on from Robert Williams and Marcus Smart is that they have traded for very good defensive players and prioritized trading for very good defensive players, even as they've moved on from guys who were, I mean, fundamental pieces of the best defensive team in NBA history from January 1st, 2022 to the end of that 2022 season where Steph Curry swiped their soul in the finals. Well, let's not let JB completely off the hook here, because while I am not going to overreact and say, ah, Jalen Brown is trash by no means, he's still that dude he still is a fun player to watch he still will have a day where he just shoots the lights out of the gym um and heck it might be friday for all i know when they play their second game we'll see how this video ages in that regard but uh what i would say you know when we talk about who is the number two who is the number three uh a common criticism between Jalen brown and jason tatum is they're too much similar in skill set they're too much the same guy well Kristaps is anything but the same guy he's bigger than everyone on the Celtics roster and adds another dimension in that that varies so much between Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum in its own right. So on a day when Jalen is having a bad game or Jason is having a bad game, because we've seen Jason Tatum have bad games before too. Unfortunately, some of them have been in the playoffs. I feel as though Kristaps can add a different element to this offense and defense that will supplement one of those two guys. Now, again, ultimately it's going to come down to You can't have both of those guys struggling, and then you have to put it all on KP and Drew Holiday. But if you need to, at least it seems like for now, you can do that, which I think is very exciting. And it, again, increases the title prospects for this team and certainly makes them the favorite in the Eastern Conference in my mind. All right, guys. Well, what do you think about the Boston Celtics? Overreactions from game one. Maybe you're watching this after game two. Same energy for Kristaps. Same energy for Jalen. How are you feeling about this team? Like to know in the comments below. Leave a like on the video. Subscribe to the channel. Follow us on our social medias from Choo Choo Cow. Stay safe, happy, and healthy. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.